0: So we're working through the New Testament letter of James, a letter that I've told you was written by the younger brother of Jesus, somebody who didn't believe in Jesus while he was walking around teaching and healing, but something happened that caused James to believe that his brother was Lord, was Son of God. We believe the thing that happened was the resurrection. We're studying the letter because it's a pastoral letter. It's a letter written from a a, a pastor living in the first century, a uh, helping New Christians Learn What It Means to Follow Jesus. It's a letter that really mirrors and parallels the teachings of Jesus very closely. It's a letter that uh, Bible scholars have called intensely practical. It deals with the how of Christianity, the how of Christianity. Uh, The message, the, the passage we're going to look at today is a difficult passage it's a difficult passage, especially for Protestant Christians, those of us who have grown up in a Protestant tradition, who look to people like Martin Luther and John Calvin, all of those who led the, the Protestant Reformation. James is going to say some things that uh, on the surface are going to cause us to go, hmm, I don't know about that, because we've been so ingrained with certain, certain levels of Protestant teaching. Uh, and so be prepared. This passage may make you a little uncomfortable as I, as I read it and as I studied it and as I really got into it. It's like, okay, this my Protestant upbringing, this makes me a little uncomfortable. And so we're going to start out. We're just going to read through the whole passage first, and then I'm going to go back and sort of unpack it. So we're just going to read it. James chapter 2, starting in verse 14. Here's what James says. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but no works? Can faith Save them. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith, I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith. By my works. You believe that God is one? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without works is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. Did And the Scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? as without the spirit as the body without the spirit is dead so faith without works is dead so i want to pause for just a minute and i want you to take stock for just a moment about what you're feeling after hearing that from james are you a little uncomfortable chances are some of you are. You've been brought up like me in a Protestant tradition where the the concept of justification by faith alone has been the bedrock of Christian faith. That's what we've been taught. And yet we have James here who says very explicitly, we are justified by works and not by faith alone. You might be thinking, but hold on a second, hold on a second, what about Paul? What about this verse in Paul and this verse in Paul and this verse in Paul, all of which seem to say that we're not justified by works but by faith. Right? How does this all fit together? And in your mind, you're probably already starting to argue a little bit with James and say, James, but what about Paul? Right? So before we go there, I just want to slow down, and we're going to take James on his own authority, in his own terms, before we try to reconcile James with Paul and anything else. So we're going to go back to the beginning, and we're going to work through this passage Slowly, verse by verse, and we're gonna we're gonna discuss, and we're gonna see what James is really saying here. And and then we'll we'll ask the question: Is he really saying something different than Paul? Is he really saying something different than than the reformers? But before we try to fit James with everybody else, we need to understand what James is saying in his own terms. So he begins by asking two rhetorical questions in verse 14. He says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no works? Can faith, save them. Now these are rhetorical questions, right? Rhetorical questions are devices that the the answer is implied. James isn't actually asking these questions hoping that people will discuss them and come up with an answer. There's an implied answer. The answer to the first question, what good is it if somebody claims to have faith but has no works? The implied answer to that rhetorical question is no good. It is no good if somebody claims to have faith but doesn't have works. The second question is even more provocative. James says, "Can faith save them?" To which the implied answer is no. A rhetorical question. The implied answer is no. James, here's what James is saying. James is saying explicitly, "Faith without works is not saving faith." Faith without works is not saving faith. Now I was taught growing up that we were saved by faith but that works brought rewards, right? I was taught that we were saved just by what we believe, right? That's what gets us in the door to heaven and then our works just bring rewards. But James seems to be saying something different here. See, I was I was taught that works were encouraged but not necessary Works were encouraged, we should have works, but they weren't really necessary to being saved. James seems to be saying differently. And then he gives an example, right? He gives an example. He says, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. So imagine somebody comes to your door and, you know, they're ragged or naked and they haven't eaten in days or weeks and they say, I need some help. I need some clothes and I need some food. And you say to them, go in peace. Keep warm and filled, and may God bless you, brother or sister. But you don't give them the things that are needed for the body. They don't meet their physical needs. James says, what good is that? Of course, we know the answer. The answer to that is no good. It would do no good to somebody who came to your door without clothes and without daily food saying, I need help, and you say, oh, brother and sister, be blessed. God is with you. Be warm and filled. And then you close the door without giving them a ham sandwich and a jacket. It's no good. As a matter of fact, it's not just no good. It's insulting, right? If you come to my door and you need something physical and I say, oh, God bless you. Be warm and filled. And I close the door without actually giving you what you need. I'm I'm not only doing no good. I'm actually insulting you, right? I'm insulting you. So here's what James says about this. He says, in the same way, in the same way that telling somebody with physical needs, oh, it'll be okay, without giving them something tangible to go, in the same way, James says, faith by itself, if it has no works, is what? Dead. Not just on life support. Not just unhealthy Not just less effective or less than ideal. He says, dead. Now, how long do you keep something dead in your house? It starts to stink, right? Have you ever ever had something die in your house or under your porch and not been able to find it for a period of time? After a while, it becomes so offensive that you... Do whatever you can to find this dead thing and get rid of it, right? This is, this is the analogy that James uses to describe what faith without works is really like. Dead things stink. That's what James tells us, that faith without works is like in the eyes and the nostrils of God. So then James, we're, we're going to move on. Now James moves into uh, uh, an imagined dialogue, with, uh, with somebody who, who may disagree with him. So here's what he says. He says, But someone will say, You have faith, and I have deeds. In other words, it, apparently within James's congregation, within the, the group of Christians he's writing to, there are, there are people there who believe that there's a difference between faith and works, faith and deeds. Somebody who says, yeah, 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 okay, one person has faith, right, and somebody else has deeds, and these are, these are separate categories. So, so James is imagining this conversation, this is probably a likely argument in his day, as we see, as I see, it still isn't our day. Um, so here's how James responds. Somebody says to him, oh, you have faith, I have deeds, these things are separate. James says, show me your faith without your deeds, and I will show you my faith How? By my deeds, by my deeds. My, my deeds, my works are what demonstrate the reality of my faith. The only way we really know if somebody has faith is by their works. And James takes this a step further. He takes us a step further. Here's what he says. He says, you believe that there is one God. Good. James says, it's good. It's good to believe that there's one God. But he says, that's not enough Even the demons believe that and shudder, right? The demons believe right things about God. The demons believe right things about God. They have right beliefs. They believe that Jesus is the Son of God. If you read through the stories in the Gospels of Jesus, demons who are possessing people will show up to Jesus, and they will call him the Son of God. They know who Jesus is. They have right and accurate theology. Their beliefs are correct. In other words, what James is getting at here is there is a fundamental misunderstanding among his audience of what real genuine faith really is. He's saying it goes beyond mere belief, beyond just having the right theology. If right belief is all it takes to be saved, James is saying, then even the devil is saved. Now, think about that. If right theology is all it takes to be saved, if right belief is all it takes to be saved, then even the devil is saved because the devil has right belief. He believes that God is one. He believes that Jesus is the son of God, he knows that. So if all it takes is believing these things, then even the devil's saved. So then so then James moves on and and he he Uh, says something that's not necessarily best practice for a pastor, he says, you foolish person. Imagine if, you know, I I wrote you a letter and I called you a foolish person. So some other translations of this, Uh, uh, one translator translates this, you stupid person. Ooh, right? Uh, An older translation uh, from from the um, mid-20th century translates this, you ignoramus not a very nice thing to write to your congregation, is it? It's not very pastoral, but James is angry. James is frustrated with this, with this lack of, of correct understanding in the church. Why is he angry? Because he knows that bad teaching is putting people in danger. This idea that all they need to do is believe the right things about God to be saved, it's actually putting people in danger. It's giving them a false sense of security. And so this this works out in some frustration. He says the the actual Greek word means empty. You empty person. Right? It's hopefully not something I would say to you in an email or a letter, but James is is frustrated here with with this, this teaching that's dangerous and giving people a false sense of security. Not only that... James knows that this kind of teaching damages our witness, and we see that today. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at a quote from Brennan Manning who said, the greatest cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge them with their lips and then walk out the door and deny them with their lifestyle. Right? If, if, if we say that all we need to do is believe in Jesus to be saved, and, and, and then our works don't follow through, we actually damage our witness to the world. And this is, we, we're still seeing this today. So James says, do you want evidence that faith without works is What? useless. It's a word that means worthless or ineffective or good for nothing, right? So this sort of pushes at our idea that, like, faith without works, well, it's it's okay, right? It's not not ideal, but it's okay. James says, no, it's not even okay. It's not even, like, unhealthy or or on life support. It's useless. It's dead. And then James goes on and gives another example from, from the Old Testament Scriptures. He says, was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he what did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar you see that his faith and his actions were what working together and his faith was made complete by what he did now, this is sort of a troubling story from the Old Testament, right? We read this story about Abraham offering his son on the, uh, on the, on the altar. Uh, we, you know, that's not something we recommend for those of you who have children, right? But this is a particular story, and it demonstrates that, that Abraham's trust in God was, was so strong that he believed that God was even able to raise his son from the dead, right? But his faith in God was demonstrated by his action. Right? He didn't just say, oh, I believe that God is able to, bring me, uh, uh, to raise my son. He went through the steps to demonstrate that faith, and it was made complete by what he did. James goes on. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. So Abraham's belief was made complete by his actions. In other words, he didn't just believe internally that God was able and that was enough. It was was that belief that worked itself out in a changed heart, in a changed mind, in a changed life, in how he carried himself in everyday living. So the, the point that James is getting at here is the faith that justified Abraham was a living, active faith that worked. It was a living, active faith that worked. It wasn't just something that happened inside of his head or inside of his heart only. It was a living, active faith that worked. And James goes on now to make perhaps the most provocative statement in his letter, especially for those of us who grew up with a Protestant background. Here's what he says. You see that a person is not justified or, I'm sorry, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, if you're familiar with church history, you know that the Protestant Reformation was launched with the, the, the foundation theological belief being that we are justified by what? Faith alone. The, the, the uh, Latin term is sola fides. Sola fides, faith alone. I was shocked to learn that the only place that the words faith alone show up in Scripture are in this verse. The only place that the words faith alone show up in the Bible is when James says we are not saved by faith alone. We're not justified by faith alone. Now, I don't think that... that, the reformers were wrong. I, I, I think that there's something else going on here. I'll, I'll explain that to you. Uh, now, this seems to contradict Paul, right? We we can think of verses in Romans and Ephesians and others where Paul says that we're justified by faith. He even uses Abraham as an example, right? So, so some people read this and they think that that James is actually arguing with Paul that they're debating the basis of our justification. I don't think that's the case. I'll explain that later. Um, I do think that James is is using faith in a particular way here to root out a particular error among his followers. And here's what he's trying to say. He's trying to say there's more to faith than right belief. There's more to genuine faith than right belief. What he's saying is genuine faith, real faith, includes right belief, but there's more. If all we have is right belief, what James is saying is that's not really faith. That's the point he's trying to make here. When Paul uses faith, Paul is referring to something that's more than just belief. So James is is taking a misunderstanding among his followers that that faith is only what we believe and that works is something different. And James is saying, no, 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 no. Works is actually a part of real faith. And so I'm going to give you a, a definition of faith here that I think works really well. Genuine faith is best understood as embodied loyalty to Jesus as King. And I think this is important for us as Protestants who, I, th- this idea that faith is merely what we believe is a prominent error even still today. Apparently, it's been an error in the church for more than 2,000 years now that faith is just what we believe. If we understand faith genuinely, as embodied loyalty to Jesus as as king, then I think we see that Paul and James are really in agreement here. When Paul uses the word for faith, this is what he means. He doesn't mean mere belief. He means embodied loyalty to Jesus as king. So, So what does that mean? What is embodied loyalty? That's a big phrase, right? A lot of syllables. Embodied loyalty. We have bodies, right? It means that we are to live, we're to demonstrate our faith by our actions, our loyalty by our actions. We'll talk about loyalty in just a minute. Another word that you'll hear me use uh, in reference to faith sometimes is the word allegiance. Allegiance. I think allegiance is sometimes a better word for the word faith because of the baggage that faith has with it. Um, and that comes from this book, Salvation by Allegiance Alone. Uh, Rethinking Faith, Works, in the Gospel of Jesus the King by Matthew Bates, fantastic book. Uh, he really dives into the biblical text itself and history and the way that words were used. So if you're kind of theologically nerdy and you like reading deeper stuff, he gives a really good reason for why he thinks that allegiance is maybe a better translation of the word faith throughout the New Testament. Um, so, so genuine faith is best understood as embodied loyalty or allegiance to Jesus as king. And when I, I'm going to give you some examples here. Uh, now, they're not perfect, right? Every analogy falls apart somewhere. But these analogies, I think, will help us understand what the biblical writers really meant when they talk about faith and how it means more than just believing the right things. Raise your hand if you're married. A lot of you are married in here. So imagine after your wedding, you, you got together, you said your vows. You know, you said, I do, I do. And you promised. Imagine that the next week your spouse starts going on dates with other people. And you say, hold on a second, remember how we just made a commitment to love one another and one another alone exclusively? And your spouse says, well, no, 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 I believe you're my spouse in my heart. I mean, I believe that my spouse exists, but they don't act in any way that married people should act and they start going out and being unfaithful to others, right? Just simply believing that your spouse exists, but living in a way as if they don't, not really marriage, is it? Not really marriage. Uh, imagine that you, you, you've been given a new job offer, right? You're applying for a job, you're given a job offer, and you accept the job offer. And then your start date comes around and you don't show up. And you don't do the job that you have been offered. And so, so the employer calls you up and says, why aren't you here? You say, well, I accepted the offer in my heart. I believe that I'm an employee of yours. To which the boss is going to say, not much longer, right? Because there's there's expected loyalty and obedience to the standards of what you have accepted to do in that case. Genuine faith works the same way. Genuine acceptance of Jesus as as Lord of our life leads to genuine life change. This is the point that that James is trying to make. It's not merely enough to walk up to the altar at one point in your life and accept Jesus at, at one moment and then live the rest of your life as if he doesn't exist, as if he's not Lord. That's not genuine faith but there were some in James's audience who believed that it was and that's still a problem today. Now I working through this I know that this raises some questions, right? If we start saying, well, we're justified by faith with works, well then that raises questions like, well, what kind of works and and how many are enough and how do I really know that I'm saved? And so we're going to talk about this for just a minute. Uh, the first, what kind of works? What kind of works is James talking about? Is he talking about going to church and showing up, you know, reading your Bible and all those things? Those are, those are good. But what James is talking about, what we see over and over again throughout this letter, is, is what he refers to as the royal law. We talked about that earlier. The royal law is that we love our neighbors as ourselves. I told you that James's letter parallels very closely the teachings of Jesus. And over and over again in Jesus' teaching, he talks about how it's how people treat those who are on the margins. If you go back and you read Matthew 25, it's how the people treated the sick, the poor, the imprisoned, the immigrants. Um, all of those, the ones who welcomed those were the ones who welcomed Jesus and were entered into eternal life. So the kinds of works that James is talking about is love for neighbor. He gives us a clue um, earlier when he says, suppose somebody shows up lacking food and clothing, and somebody says to them, depart and be f- warm and filled, right, but doesn't give them what they need. These are the kinds of works that James is seeing in his community, people who say, oh, well, we, 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 we believe in Jesus. He says, well, no, if you believe in Jesus, really, then you're going to take Jesus's teaching seriously, and you're going to love your neighbor as your self. So those are the kind of works that James is talking about. The next question, how many is enough? Right, I I hear this. Well, if if works play a role in our final justification, well then what's the bare minimum, right? How many hours in the soup kitchen do I need to work to make sure that I'm good with God? And I'm not going to answer that question because it's the wrong question. It's the wrong question. Let me, it, it, what that does is it reduces salvation to a one-time transaction with God as opposed to an ongoing, loving, living relationship, which is what salvation biblically really is. So, so imagine this. Imagine saying to your, your spouse, what's the bare minimum I need to do to get by and still be your spouse? What kind of a marriage is that? Imagine, uh, you, you, you know, you know you, your kids. What's the bare minimum? How many times a day do I need to feed my kids before Child Protective Services comes and takes them away? What kind of, what kind of a relationship is that? Right? So if we're, if we're asking about the bare minimum, it's a demonstration that we don't actually understand what salvation really is. This new transformative love relationship. And in a loving relationship, we don't ask, what's the bare minimum we do just to be okay? So I'm going to give you what I think is a better question. I believe this is a better question. Instead of asking, what's the bare minimum I need to do to be saved? Ask, if I believe that Jesus died for me, what does love require of me? if I really believe that Jesus gave his very life so that I could have eternal life in a relationship with God, then what does love require of me for my neighbor? Let's all ask this together. Let's say it together. If I believe that Jesus died for me, what does love require of me? One more time. If I believe that Jesus died for me, what does love require of me? You see how this is a change in mindset? How this shifts from bare minimum to, to what can I do? What do I have the privilege to do? What do I have the ability to do? What does love require of me? And, and chances are, if we ask that question, we're going to know the answer. Now, it's not, it's not always easy, right? If I ask myself, let's say it's, it's the end of a long day, right? And I've had a long day and I'm tired and, and Gabrielle has had a long day and she's tired too. Instead of asking, what's the bare minimum I have to do to keep peace in the house? And I'll be honest, sometimes, sometimes that's, you know, long day, that's how I feel, right? But if I ask myself, what does love require of me? I know what I need to do. And I don't do that just to save the marriage, but because I know that this relationship based on love will flourish As I live that out. And if she lives that out, imagine marriages, imagine marriages where where we base our decisions on what love requires of us towards the other person. Imagine if the husband and the wife both asked that question, how happy would your marriage be if every decision you made was, what does love require of me towards my spouse? Not, what can I get away with? Right? Not, what's the bare minimum I need to do to not tick my spouse off? But how sweet would our marriages be if we, if we let this be our standard? What does love require of me? How about our relationships at work or with our friends or in church? If, if all of us ask this question, what does love require of me? What Wouldn't the world be a better place? Right? This is what James is getting at here. Sometimes, for some reason, uh, you know, as a pastor, I, I often hear the question, is such and such sin? Is this thing sin? And I always think that that's the wrong question. Because what that indicates is if I ask, is such and such sin, I'm asking how close I can get to the sin line without ticking God off. Right? It's like, I really want to do that, but I don't want to tick God off, so how close can I get, right? And that indicates that my heart's not really in the right place. The right question is, what is pleasing to God? What does love mean? require of me? And James says that if we really have saving faith, these are the kinds of questions we'll ask. We won't ask, well, how close can I get to sin before I tick God off? How close, how much sinning can I do before I'm no longer saved? Right, James says, no, 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 no. Real saving faith is a love-based relationship where we ask the question, what does love require of me? So, let's ask this question. now, it's easier hearts and minds here. God is not demanding perfection, right? God's not demanding perfection. It's not like you have to love perfectly every day for the rest of your life or he's going to boot you out. That's not, that's not how our marriages work, right? Raise your hand if your spouse is perfect. <laughs> Some of you are lying. <laughs> Raise your hand if you think your spouse thinks you're perfect. <laughs> Some of you are lying even more. Um our spouses don't require perfection, but what do they require? Faithfulness, right? So sometimes we slip up, right? This, this, isn't, I'm not, this isn't supposed to be one of those, those sermons where you leave around thinking, oh my God, I, you know, well, if, if, I, if I say the wrong thing today, I might not be saved. But I, I want us to, to really check our hearts and our minds and ask how we think about our relationship with God. Do we think about what does love require of me? When we look at those in need, in our, in our families, in our communities around the world, is our heart one of compassion? If it's not, we may need to ask, have we really been transformed on the inside by what Jesus has done for us? Because if we're really transformed by what Jesus has done for us, then the bare minimum to get into heaven isn't our, isn't our concern our concern becomes how much can I do with what I have and what I've been given? How much more can I love? How much better can I love? How much more can I share? Okay, so the bottom line here that James is getting at, faith without works is not saving faith. Faith without works is not saving faith. If all you do is believe that Jesus is the Son of God, but you don't actively love your neighbor as yourself, that may be an indication that your heart actually hasn't really been transformed by the gospel. Because even the demons believe, even the demons believe, the kind of faith that saves, and Jesus agrees with this, and Paul agrees with this, and even Luther would agree with this, I believe, that the kind of faith that saves is the faith that transforms, the faith that works itself out in love for God and love for neighbor. So this is, this is, a, this is a heart check sermon, right? It's a heart check sermon for me. When I, when I check my heart, am I just doing the bare minimum to get by? Do I think that it doesn't really matter how I treat my neighbor because I went down to the altar one day 20 years ago? And if that's the way that I think, I need to recheck my understanding of what it means to be in a saving relationship with God. So think about the relationships in your life. And if the relationships in your life would succeed if you use the same mentality there as you do with God. Last week, James encouraged us to speak and act as those who would be judged by the perfect law of liberty. And he said, those without mercy will be shown judgment without mercy. How much does my life characterize mercy towards those in need? Do I love my neighbor as myself? Or do I drive by somebody and say, God bless be warmed and filled, and don't... Now, does this mean that you you have to give away every single dollar except one and every single shirt except one and all of that in order to, to finally be saved? No. Right? But this does mean that if we're in relationship with God through Christ, our hearts are transformed, and we're asking the question, what does love require of me? And we're becoming more and more transformed into the one who gave everything on our behalf. Faith without works is not saving faith. And so if this pricks something in you, if this makes you feel a little convicted, it might be time to do some soul searching. And here's the thing about God, right? We've read the story. We know the story of the prodigal son. We know that God is a a loving God with arms wide open. right? He's not an angry judge sitting up in heaven waiting to judge us and, and strike us down if we have a misstep. But if we find that our relationship with God hasn't been what it should be, then we're given the opportunity to repent, right? In my relationship with my wife, there are times when I don't act the way that I should. And when I realize that that's the case, I I suck it up. I say, okay, I messed up. Honey, I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? That's what repentance is. And so if you find that your heart hasn't been right, if this pricks you, this doesn't mean that you need to, you know, that you're, you know, you need to run away in fear or that God's out to get you. It just means that maybe you need to take some time this week and say, you know what, Lord, I'm sorry. My heart hasn't been right with you. And then pray that he would give you his heart. And, his eyes. and if you pray for forgiveness, Jesus tells us, it, 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 God is like a loving heavenly father. And if, if a son asks his father for an egg, his, 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 the father is not going to give the son a scorpion. Right? If he asks for a piece of bread, he's not going to give him a stone. We have a loving father that if you realize that you're not in the right place with God, that if your faith has been this shallow belief, then then just repent. Just say, Lord, I'm sorry. I've been missing the mark. Will you forgive me? And you know what? If you ask God, will you forgive me, do you know what the answer is? Yes. God is gracious and merciful and slow to anger, and he wants you to be in loving relationship with him. So this, this, this isn't a message meant to condemn, but it is a message meant to make us think. And it might be a message meant to convict if, we finding our, if we're finding ourselves in a place where we think that we can be okay with God when we're not okay with our neighbor. Because John tells us, right, in, in another book, John tells us that if we claim to love God, but we don't love our neighbor, we're what? Liars. That's the word John, these these. Biblical writers used some harsh language, didn't they? Foolish person, liar. That, that this, was, this was a big deal for them, that, the, that faith needed to work itself out, particularly in love for neighbor. So just do some soul searching this week. We're going to come up and sing another song, and if something really pricks your heart to, today and you feel like you need to come up to the altar during this last song and, and, and confess and repent and, for, and ask for forgiveness, then do that. Don't let the conviction drive you further away. Remember that you have a loving Heavenly Father who wants to welcome you in, but that all relationships take mutual love and respect for one another. Faith without works is not saving faith. Let's pray. Lord, this is a hard passage. Uh, I I try to put myself in the, the the sandals of James' original hearers who may have Felt insulted when James called them a stupid person, uh, but Lord, th- what that indicates to me is that this is this is a serious issue in, in your eyes. So, Father, I pray that in, in areas in my life where, where, maybe I have only mentally assented to certain truths and have not allowed those to transform me, that you would illuminate those in my heart, and that you would help transform the way that I think into a way that I I live out my faith tangibly in the world especially towards my neighbor. Lord, for others who are hearing this either in the room or online, live, or those who listen to this in the future, if they're feeling conviction, Lord, I pray that you would remind them that that conviction is a reminder that you are a loving Heavenly Father, full of grace and mercy, slow to anger, that you will forgive. But Lord, I pray that if we find an area in our life where we're we're not living up, that you would give us strength and courage to live out our faith in a way that is demonstrable through our lives, through our actions, through our works. Lord, thank you for loving us enough that you initiated this to begin with, that you loved us so much that even while we were sinners and even while we were enemies, that you gave your Son to die for us. Father, I pray that that would inspire us to give ourselves in self-sacrificial loving service to those around us. Lord, may the faith that we have be a faith that transforms. May it be a faith that works. Thank you for this, in Jesus' name, amen.